0: Well, I wonder, are you like me and you don't like people telling you what to do? Uh, I remember one such time when I was a a 10-year-old kid uh, at school, primary school, we have been learning about the rights of a child. Uh, you know, the rights, so you can see already where this is heading, right? Uh, the rights of safety, protection, and care, all these important rights. And I remember coming home after learning about these rights one day, and uh, my mum asked me, Paul, can you tidy up your bedroom? And I, you know, after, I was feeling empowered after learning about my rights, <laughs> and I, um, I said to her mum, I don't want to. Uh, some that's yeah. Some that's right. Some people. Oh, so she responded. Then Paul, if you don't tidy up your bedroom, you're not going to be allowed to have time on the computer later. Um, at that, I defiantly walked over to the telephone, picked it up, and said, "Mum, that's not fair. I've got rights, you know." <laughs> and I said to her, "I'm going to call the police <laughs> because you're ignoring my rights." You you know, my mum at that Wisely and, you know, calmly Took the fan out of my hands Put it down and said Paul, go and tidy up your bedroom right now (laughs) This, you know, definitely Wasn't my finest moment It's a true story, right? And it wasn't great on a whole bunch of levels But mainly because In that moment I was questioning my mum's authority over me As my mother You know, she had birthed me, brought me into the world. She'd fed me, she'd raised me, she'd cared for me. And here I was basically saying to her, who put you in charge of my life? I didn't say it in as much words, but my actions clearly showed who I thought was number one. My actions showed who I thought was in charge. And I reckon if we're honest, we all don't like it when people tell us what to do. We might not have the audacity to declare, I've got rights, you know, like I did as a child, but we all want to live life on our terms, with ourselves in the driver's seat. And I reckon this is why many people have a problem with Jesus. Maybe even some of us here today, we think, what right does Jesus have to tell me how to live my life? What right does he tell me what I can and can't do with my body? What right does he have to, you know, tell me how I should use my money and my time? What right does he have to tell me who I should marry or spend my time with? Even for those of us here today who say we follow Jesus, do you really live life with Jesus in, every, in charge of every area of it? Do you really live life with him in the driver's seat? He might be your saviour, but is he your Lord? Well, if you're sitting there today and you're, and you're wondering that this question, what right does Jesus have? Well, it's the same question that's raised in our passage. It's the same question the religious leaders asked in Jesus' day. We saw it there in verse 23. They came to Jesus and said, what authority do you have, Jesus? These guys are asking the same question that is being asked, you know, by many people today. And so we're going to unpack this question and we're going to see two contrasting truths We're going to see Jesus has authority to bring down the proud, but then he also has authority to lift up the humble. But before we dive into Jesus' answer, it's helpful to think about actually what's come before our passage. Where are we in Matthew's gospel? What's the context surrounding this question? Uh, Last week, we, we dived into the first half of 21, and we saw Jesus, he's come to Jerusalem. And actually, this point in Matthew's gospel, you know, marks the last week in Jesus' life. And over this last week, and as we keep reading through these chapters, we'll see this mounting opposition and hostility to him by the religious leaders. And we saw a glimpse of that last week. Jesus, you know, comes into the temple. He overturns the money changers. He starts healing the blind and the lame. The children responded in praise to him. But the religious leaders, they are outraged. They're outraged because they're thinking, who does he think he is that he can come in here like he rules the place? So with this looming tension, this is, you know, what they're feeling towards Jesus. We come to our passage for today. And this is day two for Jesus in Jerusalem. He enters again and he goes to the temple. And you can just imagine, you know, the people in the temple, they're thinking, man, he came in here yesterday and he did that. What is going to happen today? You know, even some of the money changers, the people, they're probably still there thinking, what's going to happen? So let's read from verse 23. What happens? Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests, the elders of the people, came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus enters the temple, and he begins teaching. And while he's teaching here, we see that the chief priests, those guys who were outraged, come to him. It's helpful to know these, these guys, the chief priests and the elders, they're the ones who are responsible for man, maintaining religious and civil order in Jewish society. These were the guys, you know, who were the ruling elite for the Jews. They're a group in the society who people looked up to, to tell them what was right, what was wrong. These guys are important people. And the key place where they ruled and were in charge of was in the temple. The temple was the the epicentre for the the life and worship for the Jews. Up to this point, Jesus, you know, ministry and teaching, he's just been going around like the backwaters of Galilee. You know, he's been going around to places kind of like Happy or Palmerston North. (laughs) But but here he comes to Jerusalem to teach. So in the minds of the chief priests and the elders, Jesus has stepped onto their turf. This, this scene, this tension between these guys kind of reminds me of a, a high school playground scene for myself. At my high school, I don't know if this was similar for you guys, you'd you know, you'd kind of sit each day in the same place uh, with your group of friends at lunch and at morning tea. You know? And where you sat kind of depended on where you sat in the, the social pecking order. Uh, and so I, I wasn't a very cool kid, as you might imagine. And so my group, we just got, we got lumped, like we would sit next to the oval, all right, next to the grass, the sun beaming down on us, wasn't pleasant, but that's, that's where I sat. Uh, but there was this one group, it was the cool group, and man, they sat, they sat next to the canteen, quick access to food, they had a water fountain, and they had shade from all the buildings, And there was this one day I was walking through this area where they sat, and one of the guys comes over to me and says, Paul, what are you doing on our turf? And, you know, I was a little bit taken aback, and he says, you don't belong here. Did you ask anyone that you could walk through where we sit? And so I, you know, as the uncool kid I was, you know, I kind of would like just said sorry and ran away. (laughs) Similarly to my high school playground, Jesus is being asked the same thing by the religious leaders. What authority do you have, Jesus? Who do you think you are that you can come in here and do what you're doing? This is our place. We're the teachers here. This is a a serious question being put before Jesus. These are powerful people Jesus is taking on. What does he say? Well, he calmly responds in verse 24. Have a look there with me. Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Jesus says to them, you answer me this. Where did John's ministry come from? Jesus' reply here is brilliant. Jesus here, he's he's connecting himself with the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the the man who was baptizing people in the desert before Jesus' ministry began. He was the one baptizing and preaching a message of repentance for the kingdom of heaven was near. John was the one who was sent by God to prepare the way for the Lord. In Matthew 3, he alludes to this. He says, after me comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. So Jesus here, he's pointing to John saying, do you get who John was? The authority that he was sent by? Do you get everything he did in your midst? If you did, you'd, get, you'd be getting who I am. Jesus is the one John was pointing to. He's God's king that has come. But the chief priests and the and elders, the, they're not genuinely interested in what, Uh, in seeking the truth. They're not genuinely interested in Jesus' answer. They've, They've already made up their mind about him. They want him to conform to their demands, their desires. They don't want to submit to his authority. They've come with one goal in mind, and that was to stand in opposition against him. But in the end, they're the ones who become undone. They're the ones whose pride is exposed. We see this in how they scramble for an answer in verse 25. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. The religious leaders, they're left speechless before Jesus they thought they could come and stand in authority over Jesus. They thought they could come and expose him. But Jesus here says, I don't answer to you. You don't have the authority to tell me what to do. Jesus is saying to them, if you'd understood all the things that, and seen what John had done, all the things that I'm doing, you wouldn't be questioning my authority. But the religious leaders, they're blinded by their own pride and self-importance. They thought they could come and tame and control Jesus. But they've completely missed and rejected the greatness in their midst. This is God's king. Come to God's world. This makes me think a little bit of the times when I go to Wellington Zoo and I go and stand in front of the tiger enclosure. And um, I, I love going and hearing the tiger talk and seeing the tiger being fed. um, Every time I've gone, I I stand in awe at this creature, all right? I'm amazed at the size of its paws, at the size of its head, and every time I'll turn to Mel and say to her, man, I would not want to come face-to-face with one of them in the wild. Now imagine with me for a moment if, you know, one day I did come face-to-face with a tiger in the wild. Imagine how foolish... It would be of me to go up to the tiger and just start telling it what to do. But that's exactly the kind of attitude the religious leaders have towards Jesus. They thought they could come face to face with God's king and demand he bow to their needs. The authority of Jesus here is exposing their pride. They are humbled before Jesus. And I wonder, do we live life any different today? Do we live life wanting Jesus to to bend to our rules, to to fit with our agendas? Do we live life treating Jesus' words as kind of, you know, optional extras to our lives? Do we fail to grasp the authority Jesus has? You only have to, you know, read back through Matthew's gospel to see his authority in all its glory. The authority to to heal the sick, to make the blind see, to to calm a storm with a word, to raise the dead to life. Jesus' authority stands, constantly stands in opposition to the proud. And when you set yourself in opposition to Jesus' authority, it's never going to end well for you. John Calvin, he paints this picture of pride. He says... All who exalt themselves wage war with God. Living your life saying to Jesus, what rights do you have to call the shots? Is living life in war and defiance with God. So let me ask you, how do you respond to Jesus' authority? Well, maybe you're not sure how do you respond. Well, Jesus goes on in the rest of our passage, and so there's two ways you could respond. Let's have a read there from verse 28. Uh, it says, There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first son and said, Go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and the, and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Now, this, this parable for all the parents out there, I'm sure, it might resonate with you. I'm a father of two daughters, and there's many times when, you know, I feel like I've been pretty clear at telling my girls to, you know, go and tidy up their bedrooms, and then I come back, and they haven't done anything. And likewise, there's times when, you know, I feel like they're not listening to me at all, that they've rejected my words, just completely ignored me, and then I go, and I'm pleasantly surprised. Oh, man, they've, they've done what I've asked. This is the life of a parent. And these are the two responses to how people treat Jesus. Jesus tells this parable, though, in judgment of the religious leaders. We see this in how he fills the parable out for us in verse 31. Have a look there with me. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, that's the religious leaders, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you, the, show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Jesus tells this parable to show them and us. It's not about where you start or what you say that matters, but it's all about how you respond to the authority of Jesus. The first son here represents those who've lived life actively rejecting God. They've said no to him. But once they hear the message of John, the message that points to Jesus, they humbly repent and give their lives in service to him. The second son represents those who, who start out loudly and publicly giving lip service to God. This is the religious leaders But in the end, they reject the message of John and they refuse to humble themselves before Jesus. Jesus wants to make it crystal clear from this parable that a life of following him is not about having your life together. It's not about saying the right things, but it's about how you respond to the authority of Jesus. It's about how you respond to who he is. So you can either respond in humility and accept him as your king or you can live life rejecting his authority. A life lived under the authority of Jesus simply begins by saying, Jesus, you are king. You are king of this world. You are king of me and I am not. I find it fascinating here in Jesus' day, the people who humbly gave their lives to him were the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the social outcasts, while the religious elite, those at the top of the ladder, reject him. I reckon there's there's a warning here for us today. If we think we have life altogether, if we think we're the most important person in our lives, we too will reject the authority Jesus has over us. We're so prone to not wanting to humble ourselves before Him. Life with Jesus is for those who fully surrender their lives to His control. It's actually about Jesus becoming greater and ourselves becoming smaller. So, the question Jesus puts before each of us today is who is in charge of your life? Who is the one calling the shots? Who's setting the trajectory and agenda of everything you do? Is it Jesus or is it you? Maybe for some of you, the idea of giving Jesus full reign in your life is maybe a little bit daunting or a bit scary. Or the incredible truth about the authority of Jesus is that he isn't a demanding or rule-making king. He isn't a king who, who lords his authority over us. He doesn't hold our past against us. No, he's a king who laid down his life for us so that he could that offer us life forever with him in his kingdom. He is a humble, self-sacrificial king. Jesus' authority is one that opposes the proud but lifts up the humble. Recently, I've been reading a book titled Confronting Jesus uh, by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's a a great book. I'd recommend you have a read of it. And through this book, she kind of touches on nine different perspectives on who Jesus is. And there's one section titled Jesus is King. And I came across this quote in it. Uh, She says that life with Jesus is for the hungry and the sick, the longing and the lonely the grieving and the failing. It's for all who know they need someone to rule their life. Life with Jesus is for all those who know they're not in control. For all those who know, man, I make a mess of my life. I need someone else to take control. Life with Jesus in charge is the life we were made for. So what does that life look like? Well, it's a life lived in humble gratitude and praise to him. I remember chatting to an older Christian man when I was at uni, and he said the way he tries to live life for Jesus every day simply starts by praying to him. He sits on the edge of his bed each morning, and he says a prayer that was something like this. He says, thank you, King Jesus, for dying for me when I was running my own race. Sorry for the times I seek to live life for me rather than you. Help me today to use my time, my thoughts, and everything I am to live for you. A life lived with Jesus in charge is one which daily dwells on how great he is. Daily gives him thanks, the life he has given us. Life with Jesus is about each day humbly recognising He is King and what a great King He is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You humbly wanting to repent of the times we live life with ourselves at the driver's seat and not Jesus. We thank You that he is a great king, a king who laid down his life for us. Help us each day to humbly lay down our lives before him, knowing he is a king worthy of our life and our all. In his name we pray. Amen.